This is Rebecca from New Haven, Connecticut. You are listening to WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Welcome to Book Talk, where we talk about books. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and today we'll be talking about the novel The Leavers, first with the author, Lisa Coe, and then with my guests, Emily Moore and Christopher Chansma. And stay tuned at the end of the show for our regular feature, a recommendation from one of our friendly New Haven librarians. Peilan Guo leaves China to go to New York, city of dreams, to make a new life for herself as a new person, Polly. Years later, caught in a sweep by immigration authorities, she makes the opposite journey, sent back to where she came from. But this time she leaves behind her 10-year-old son, Deming, who knows only that one day his mother went to her job at a nail salon and never came home. Child welfare delivers him to a white couple who adopt him, take him out of the city, rename him Daniel. Told from the perspectives of both mother and son, this is a story of the importance of names, the meaning of home, what it is to leave, and what it is to be left. I had the opportunity to speak with author Lisa Coe last week, and I'd like to share that interview with you now. Lisa Coe was born in Queens and raised in New Jersey. She went to Wesleyan University, just up the road from us in New Haven, lived in San Francisco for a time, and now resides in Brooklyn. The Leavers, which won the 2016 Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction, is her first novel. Lisa, thanks so much for joining me today on Book Talk on WNHH Community Radio 103.5 FM. Thanks, Sid. It's great to be here. So, Lisa, I was looking on your website as I was writing my introduction of you, and I have to say you have my favorite author bio ever, because in addition to the typical, you know, rundown of all of the awards you've ever been given, you have this almost kind of like essay in first person about who you are and how you became the writer that you are, which I really loved. And in yeah. it, you quote one of your writing teachers as saying, in order to write the book you want to write, you have to become the person you need to be in order to write that book. Mm-hmm. So I wondered if maybe we could start by talking about what that means to you and how you think that played out in the writing of this book. Sure. So the entire process of writing The Leavers was a pretty lengthy one. Um, It took me about eight years. And, you know, as happens for anybody, a lot changes over the course of eight years. And I definitely really am not the same person that I was when I started writing that book as I am now. And one of the things that I really had to learn while writing was how much of the writing process had to do with me. And it was, you know, aside from all the writing classes and workshops and, and um, lessons on craft I, I had taken and, and the skills I had learned. So much of trying to figure out how to write the novel was to really have to look at why I wanted to write it and to sort of think about what I was trying to say and to whom and why. And to me, I think, you know, some of the road bumps in the way were kind of getting over my own ego, I guess trying not to write a novel because I wanted to prove to people that I did my research, for instance, or or prove to my supposed audience that I could write, Um, but just to sort of take that step back and try to think of how can I tell the best story I can and, and to sort of take that apart from all these other reasons why I was kind of going into it in the first place. How do you feel like you, how do you get there? (laughs) Um, for me, you know, a lot of it was just trying 
and failing and trying again. And I think that's definitely a kind of a good way to get over yourself. You know, I, I wrote and deleted so many drafts on my way to the final draft that I really kind of had to realize to, to learn like what it meant to want to write from an intention of wanting to write a good story rather than wanting to write to, you know, for instance, prove to my parents that I could or, or prove to my grade school teacher that I could or all those kind of old subconscious reasons that one might have. So I'm interested in what you say about, you know, you've, you, you worked on the book for eight years and you wrote these many drafts. And I want to hear a little bit more about that process. I mean, when you write something over eight years, is it just that you write really slowly or is it, <laughs> is it that, you know, is it more a sense of like you write something and it doesn't work and you get rid of it and you write something else? And how do you, you know, how do you know what to keep and what to get rid of? And I guess I'm curious too, to hear about the ways the final draft looks like what you started with and the ways that it really doesn't. Yeah, there's very little actually remaining in the final draft in terms of the actual writing from the very beginning. I mean, I knew I knew right away what the story was I wanted to tell. I wanted to tell the story about a mother and her son, how they get separated and find their way back to one another. But I think the greatest challenge was trying to figure out really how to tell that story. So in the very first drafts, it was mainly Polly, the mother's story. It was written mostly from her point of view. I actually had a first chapter that remained in the book for many, many years that was a short story that was published very early on. And I think in a way that gave me a lot of encouragement. On the other hand, it kind of made me feel like I had to keep that chapter in in the novel, Mm -hmm. um, even when it was no longer working, right? So I, I ended up building so many of the scenes around the events that happened in that chapter that became that story back in 2009. But about five, five or six years into it, I realized like, I'd written myself in a corner, <laughs> you know. By then I had started writing this dual narrative where um, Polly's son Deming also has his own story being told. And it no longer made sense for the events of that first chapter, which was somewhere now in the middle of the book, to, to even be there anymore. So I ended up having to delete everything kind of that grew out of that scene, which was about 80% of the book at that point. And, and kind of recast everything and rewrite it from Deming's starting point. And that was sort of the final road to the final draft. Talk a little bit about how you decided to include Deming's voice in the first place. Well, I was really always very intrigued. I mean, Believers is based in part on real life stories of, of undocumented immigrant parents who are separated from their U.S. born children who are then adopted by American families. And so I was always very interested in a lot of the questions and issues that this raised, as well as kind of being horrified by it as well. And when I was first writing initially from the mother's point of view, I just kept thinking about her son and, and sort of what had happened to him and, and what was it like for him to grow up apart from his, his mother and be adopted into this white middle class family. So, you know, just sort of his story was sort of begging to be told. And then I just sort of gave it a try and and kind of went with it and realized how much I wanted to tell his story as well. Did you find it challenging to write from the point of view of an adolescent male? I actually didn't. I I found it really easy, actually. It felt harder to write about, to write from Polly's point of view in, in some ways, because she is born and raised in China. 
she's not entirely familiar to me, whereas Deming, you know, he's a New Yorker, he's born in New York City, like I was, he's raised in the suburbs like I was. So a lot of his experiences, although nothing really like mine, share some sort of emotional similarities with me. And did you, um, I noticed that the chapters from Deming's perspective are written in the third person, and the sections from Polly's perspective are written in the first person and written almost directed to Deming, written addressing him as you. And that was an interesting choice, I thought. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about that. Again, you've written these many drafts. Was it always that way or did you did you kind of come to that? It was definitely not always that way. I think I tried every possible combination, um, it feels like, uh, regarding point of view and, and tense. You know, there were drafts where both of Deming and Polly's stories were told in first person, drafts where they were both told in close third, drafts where they were both told in past tense and present tense. So it was really a process of figuring out what worked the best. And for some reason, it just seemed to really click for me. When I had Polly in the first person, and not only that, but having her talk to her son and kind of address him as you and have her part of the book being really her telling Deming about herself. And that just seemed to really work both as a narrative choice and just as a, as a story choice, a plot choice as well. So as a writer, when you play around with voice like that, when you switch from third person to first person, is it really just a question of like you go through the chapter and you change everything to first person or you change it to third person? Or are you kind of writing something new in a different voice and seeing how it works? I think in the beginning, there, there was one very long summer, I think maybe a year or two into the writing novel, where I, I realized I had this idea that I would change everything from third person to first. So I spent, oh, I don't know, like two months going through and, and doing like fine and replace. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, you know, then I read it over and I'm like, this is really clunky. It's terrible because... You, you can't just replace a third-person narrative with a first-person narrative because obviously there are all these problems in terms of what one sees, you know, if you're talk if the character is talking from himself or herself versus sort of an, a more omniscient narrator. And, and there's kind of different things one can reveal in the first person, different, different kind of choices regarding voice and style. So, yeah, I ended up having to sort of rewrite everything to fit that that choice. And you're working on this book for, for eight years. Do you get sick of it at any point? <laughs> yes, very, very often. <laughs> yeah, I found myself often cheating on it with short stories. Um, Interesting. Which was nice. You know, it was a way to sort of feel like I can get some other work done while still um, writing and being creative. And yeah, you know, it, it was it was definitely, there were definitely long periods of time where I was like, why am I doing this? <laughs> but, but in the end, you know, the choice to, to give up was, was just kind of such a terrible idea to me that I couldn't, the only choice felt like I had to try to finish it. And um, then when you're, when you're in that, that place of like, the process is so long and, and so ongoing, how do you even know when you like feel like you have reached an end? Do you just know? <laughs> you know, I feel like maybe I, I feel know like now. I feel like we're having a conversation about you know like getting married like yeah, do, do you just know when he's the one? <laughs> <laughs> Is she the right person for me? Um, yeah, you know now that the book's out in hardcover and has been for several months, yeah, maybe I can say that it's done. <laughs> 
you know, although if I went back and read it, I could probably think of several places where I'd be like, oh, maybe I can like change that word instead of that word. So, you know, in some, in some ways, a writer's job is never done. On the other hand, you sort of have to let it go because it's, it, it is done. It's, it's now being shared with the world. But, you know, I feel like for me, my, my journey towards publication was pretty atypical where I happened to send out a draft that I knew was close-ish, but not really quite finished for the Penn Bellwether Prize, not expecting to win at all. And then when I did win, in, in I think the six months between when I submitted the draft and when I found out I won, I actually had rewritten it to an entire, entirely new draft. So I think winning the prize and with it, you know, the book deal with Algonquin, that was sort of the signal to me that was saying, okay, it's time to stop writing. Now we're going to edit it's done. <laughs> I guess that's good. You get an outside signal telling you. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Maybe you need that because you've been so immersed in it for, for so long. Working on it by now, you know, if it wasn't for that. I'm curious, too, about your choice that you made this a mother and son relationship instead of a mother and daughter. And just wonder if, if you had thoughts on that at all. I mean... In some ways, you might expect, you know, just coming from your perspective as a woman, maybe you'd be more interested in writing about mothers and daughters. And what intrigued you about the mother-son relationship in particular? Well, you know, I feel like in I've written about mothers and daughters in other pieces of fiction. And it's true because I am a daughter and I do have a mother. It's hard to sort of separate that emotionally from my own experiences and my own, my own relationship with my own mother. So there's a way that it does make it a lot easier to write a specific mother and son story. But the reason behind it really grew out of the article that inspired the novel in the first place. So it grew out of a, an article that I read in the New York Times in 2009. And that article was about a mother and a son. So it was about an undocumented Chinese immigrant who had been separated from her young son. So when I started writing the novel, I just sort of had those characters in mind and that relationship in mind. And you talked a little bit before about you know, one of the motivating factors that you had to let go of was this idea of, you know, I have to show off all the research that I've done. But I'm curious about that, actually, especially in a novel like this, like the level of research that it takes to write something that feels authentic and then how you're able to put enough of it in so that it feels true and yet let enough of it go so that it doesn't feel boring. Yeah, I mean... I did end up doing a great deal of research. I think that research, you know, any writer might agree with me, can be a really great way to procrastinate. So <laughs> I spent many months reading and, and interviewing and even traveling to China where um, Polly is, to, to the town and the city where Polly is from. Um, I wondered if you had traveled there. Yeah. So I ended up going back to, well, not going back, going to Fuzhou, where, where she ends up living, and, and also to the small town outside that city where she, she grew up. And that was really helpful in terms of, you know, learning a lot about the kind of details and textures that informed the chapters that take place in China. But yeah, you know, as you mentioned, after I came back from that trip, there, there was a period of time where I was just kind of excited that I had done the research and also, you know, feeling anxious about not wanting to get things wrong about writing about a country and a culture that, that wasn't mine. So for, for a long time, there was just kind of very extraneous details that I put in there because <laughs> like, I wanted to kind of prove that I had done that research. And in the long run, when I those drafts, I was like, 
the stuff doesn't really help the story. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not really necessary to have these long passages about you know street corners or or buses or you know specific town squares and and stores. So that then it became a question of kind of removing enough so that the story could breathe again on its own and not be weighed down with all of those details. And do you have a first reader or a group of readers that you rely on to help with some of this? I do. I had several, I have several close friends who are also writers and we've exchanged work and and they were really, really helpful to me in in reading entire drafts of the book at, at different stages of the writing process. So that, that was just so helpful. And I had different parts of it read to by friends and acquaintances and, and people that I knew of who had expertise in different different matters. For instance, you know, music, musician friends read the parts of it about Daniel's music career to sort of give me advice on what kind of recording equipment he might use or others who have more knowledge about China read passages from, from that part of the book. So speaking of Daniel's musical interests, I was really intrigued by one particular detail in the book, which is that Daniel experiences this thing called synesthesia, where you associate colors with sound. And it's a, it's a small detail in the book. You don't make too much of it. But it was very noticeable to me. And I wondered where that idea came to you. You know, I've always been very intrigued by synesthesia. I've had several friends who, who do have it, both from music and other, you know, numbers being associated with different colors. And I just think it's such a really interesting way to see the world. And, and part of me kind of secretly wishes I had that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, you know, I was, I gave Daniel music pretty early on, uh, not only because music is a big part of my life and has been a big part of my identity, but I was sort of looking to give him, you know, something of his very own, especially when he moves from the city to live with his new adoptive parents in this small suburban town and he's feeling isolated. So music becomes this way for him to kind of have his own language and his own identity and his own talent. And the synesthesia sort of, to me, was another interesting way to sort of play with the idea of music as language and language identity being a really big part of the book. The fact that he sees colors with with sound is sort of a way to explore how language can be learned and forgotten and retained. To me, it was really interesting the way that also set Daniel apart from other people. And he feels so isolated so much of the time, so different from other people. And this is yet another way that he experiences things in ways that other people can't understand. Right. Yeah. But it's like, it's a way that he can use that difference for empowerment, I guess. You know, he's all of a sudden in this new town where he's the only Asian kid. He's surrounded by strangers, really. And having this sort of gift of music and this particular way of looking at music and hearing music gives him a way to define himself outside of that in a way that's cool, you know. So difference for him can be something that's useful and and, um, empowering versus limiting. So the penultimate chapter of this book belongs to Polly. And it ends with a sentence that felt, to me, very final. You could definitely have stopped the book there. But you chose to give the final chapter to Daniel, to Deming. And um, I wonder about why, if you thought about stopping it with Polly. You know, in some of the earlier drafts, it did stop with 
that chapter. In fact, the last two chapters were actually switched around where the Deming slash Daniel chapter takes place and then the final Polly chapter takes place. But through some conversations with my editor, we kind of decided that since the book starts with Deming, it kind of makes sense to end with Deming. And the Deming chapter and sort of his finding of home and, and community is kind of felt like a better way to land given the art of the novel. And, and a question that I like to ask my authors a lot is, um, is whether you wanted to give your characters a happy ending, whether that mattered to you and whether you feel like that is something that you did. Mm. I feel like I did give them a happy ending, although, you know, some people might, might beg to differ depending on, depending on how you read it. Yeah, you know, the novel's really about both Polly and Deming kind of trying to find a way to be and a way to live that's beyond all these expectations that other people put on them. And I think that, that by the end, that's something that they've both managed to do and, and found for themselves. Well, Lisa, it has been great talking with you today. I really appreciate your taking the time. Thank you so much. I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. I want to take a moment to introduce my guests. Emily Moore is the author of the poetry collection Shuffle, and last appeared on Book Talk discussing Dina Goldstone's novel, Surprise Me. Christopher Jansma has the distinction of being the first person to appear on Book Talk as both an author and a guest reader. He was last on Book Talk talking about his own novel, Why We Came to the City, now out in paperback. Chris and Emily, great to have you both here. Great to be here, Sid. Me too. So I wanted to start with a quote from page 253. And this is Deming, now Daniel, talking, or it's from his perspective, and it says, quote, By his last year in high school, thinking of Deming or Mama was like remembering a terrible band he had once loved but now filled him with mortification. Back then, the mystery of what had happened to his real family had been too enormous to solve, but now he had found them, and nothing had changed. And I thought that was such a profound moment. You know, he has this mystery of what has happened to his mom who has disappeared, and he thinks that finding the answer to the mystery is going to change everything, and ultimately he finds that it doesn't. And I guess I wondered what you guys made of that, what you thought he, he was looking for and why the answer didn't do that for him. Ooh, it's such a great, such a great question. To, to me, this question connects to another question that I had about this novel, which is sort of the title and the idea of the levers. And I do feel like there's something sort of wonderfully alike and restless about Deming and his mother who has, like him, has several names, but who uh, I think of as her English name, Polly, because she claims it so beautifully in the middle of the novel. But I do, I did find that really interesting that they both are sort of restless all the time. And obviously, they're both actively displaced by various, you know, uh, immigration, detention camps, the adoption, much of which happens against their will. But they also each have this sort of wonderful restlessness to, you know, and, and are in their own life in addition to restless in ways that are, have to do with sociological forces controlling, you know, where they can be. Yeah, that, that totally rings true for me as well. I, I felt like I connected with all the characters in the, in the novel, but uh, particularly Daniel slash Deming. I 
felt really sort of drawn in right away by his sort of confusion over it, just kind of who he was and who he's supposed to be. And in his parts of the book, it feels like kind of a coming of age story, which is some something that I always am a sucker for. But it's interesting because, you know, he doesn't have any clear sense of sort of what he's supposed to be, what kind of identity he's supposed to be forming. He's got pieces of, of American culture and his, uh, his Chinese culture and memories and parts of you know, kind of multiple different identities all sort of, you know, folded together. And I felt like his quest for to find his mom, he, I think he must have just sort of, you know, really felt that that was going to help him figure out, you know, what he's supposed to do with his life and who he's supposed to be. And, uh, and I love that it didn't, it didn't give him those answers, you know, because that's not something he's going to find outside of himself, I guess. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. I, and I love that, too. Like, it would have been very easy in some ways for, like, the book to kind of wrap up with, like, the mystery being solved. And he mm-hmm. rejoins his mom. And that's the happy, tidy ending. But as you said, yeah. it really does feel like a coming-of-age story. And part of coming-of-age is realizing that just knowing where you come from isn't enough to know who you are, even though you might need to know where you come from to begin to know who you are. And for Deming, for Daniel, you know, knowing where he comes from is only one piece of it, because of course he's been shaped by all of these other forces. For the last 10 years, he's spent his life with this other family and in this Mm -hmm. other town, and those are now parts of who he is too. So just finding the answer to what happened to his mom isn't going to give him the answer to who he wants to be or who he thinks he is. Absolutely. And in fact, it's even deeper and more complicated than that. When I was rereading the book, I was totally astonished by the amount of worlds that Lisa Ko evokes and the different disruptions in each of their lives. For me, the most palpable and sort of tremendous and complicated and imperfect and sort of wonderfully uh, sensuous in, in the sense that of sort of evoking all senses world is the one that Deming and his mom share in that tiny apartment with Leon, his mom's partner, and with Leon's sister, uh, Vivian, and Vivian's boy, Michael, who's really a surrogate brother for Deming. But that said, there are so many other lives and disruptions that we have. And we even get that amazing set of flashbacks to the time when uh, Deming was sent as an infant, or as I think is about one years old, um, to China to live with Polly's father for, I think, it is it five years? Yeah, five so years. So there's this enormous disruption in the parent-child bond. You know, in, in some ways, he has, he's lost his mother before, too. And, and of course, it's a heartbreaking, you know, as someone with a very young son right now, it's a heartbreaking loss. And, you know, she does it at, at her wits end. And she does it, you know, to have him stay with family with his grandfather as well. So, you know, it's but it, but it's so complicated. And, you know, so there's that. And then you have those amazing scenes where the, the, he is reunited with his mother at age six or so to come back to the U.S. and go to school. So there are all these ways in which he and Polly really are always kind of losing each other and finding each other throughout. Yeah. And that takes me back to what you mentioned initially, Emily, which is the title, The Leavers. And I wanted to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on who The Leavers are and why why you think Coach chose to make that the title of this book. Yeah, I, I thought that was a, a, just such a rich title. And it, it I felt like in one chapter after another, there would be all these different sort of uses for it. At first, I saw it as, you know, really just mostly being about 
Holly leaving him, which, you know, starts off as sort of the heart of the, you know, of the novel. But then it becomes about Holly leaving China in the first place. When once we start to get into her backstory, it's about something that Daniel starts to, you know, inherit. It's like one of the few things that he has that he knows about his mother growing up is that she left him. And so he becomes someone who is also a weaver uh, over the course of the novel. I wanted to say, and I just, I loved um, Polly's character. I, I have known this woman in my life, but I have never seen her in print and I've never seen anyone like her in print. And I was just so thrilled to have such a sort of complicated, scrappy, funny mother and loving and just she's just amazing to me so I, I wanted to say I adore her and one of the things that I love about her is that she's incredibly imperfect and she's sort of itchy like she she wants to leave in ways that involve her own agency you know we see her setting up this new life in Florida kind of against the wishes of everybody in her family um, and then also she's forced to leave she's she's taken to a detention camp against her will. And that ends up being one of the sort of central conflicts in the novel. And I, I liked her itchiness and her scrappiness. And I do agree with Chris's word, that idea of inheritance and the ways that Deming inherits some of those qualities from her in ways that he sort of does and doesn't understand because he spends so much of the novel not, not quite knowing his mother's story. Mm-hmm. I guess, though, I, I tend to think of leaving as having kind of a negative connotation that I associate it with abandonment. And I also associate it with this idea of, of flight, of, of you're leaving something behind rather than going towards something. And I wonder if you guys felt that as well, if you think that, you know, this inheritance, because Deming does leave also, right? He leaves mm-hmm. Ridgeboro, he mm-hmm. leaves his adoptive parents. And then ultimately when he goes to China and joins his mom, he leaves her too. And at the very end of the book, yes. spoiler alert, um, Polly has <laughs> left the life that she has made with a new husband and, and with a good job in China. And she has left and gone to the next thing. And I guess I wondered yeah. how you guys felt about that. Like, is that a positive thing that they're always kind of reaching for their dreams? Or is it is is there something, you know, different about a choice to go someplace versus a choice to leave another place? That's sort of the central question for me. Like in the beginning, I, I had the same connotation. You know, I saw it as a purely negative, you know, aspect. And I, I had reading those first several chapters from his point of view, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, ever whatever the answer was going to be. I, I was having a, a hard time imagining how I would ever like Polly uh, or under, you know, be able to understand sort of how she could have done that to, to her son. And I, I was expecting it to be so much more two-dimensional. And then, of course, as you get into her story and you start to realize, you know, how much of that is out of her hands. But at the same time, as much as it wasn't necessarily her her decision to abandon him, we find out for, you know, very clearly that, she, and she's very upfront with him in her recollection, that, she, that he was sort of not part of the plan, um, that mm-hmm. she wanted to have an abortion. It, it all sort of inconveniently worked out that he was even born. And reading those parts, I thought, you know, this is going to be, I'm going to have a really hard time, you know, kind of getting getting to a place of sympathy for this character. And then it over the course of the novel, I felt like it, it really changed. And I started to see, first of all, you know, much more, uh, you know, understanding of, of, of her and where this is all coming from and how 
the outside systems were sort of forcing her hand in different places. You know, it's not that she doesn't love her son or that she you know, didn't want to have a son, but it's, you know, she was in the middle of trying to make a better life for herself, you know, for the future. And then this happened. It reminded me of a children's book that I was reading recently with my son, it's sort of like a funny modern day children's book. And the, the moral of the story at the end, you know, if you don't like the story you're in, you can leave. I kept thinking of that as I was reading it because I thought, you know, that that's kind of a powerful idea that, and I think it's something that Daniel learns is that, yeah, you're not stuck in Ridgeboro forever if you don't want to be. You don't have to live in this in between place where you're not really adopted and you're, you're sort of a foster kid. Mm. All these years later, you know, you can you can make a choice and 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 make a change, and it's scary, but that I felt like that was something that he sort of you know gets the nerve to do through Polly, which is really amazing. It's true, and you think of all the different ways that she's reinvented herself. You know, you think of her heading out to the factory uh, to do factory work as a young woman, or um, you know, taking on the sort of crushing debt. I thought that was so. Yeah. powerful um, uh, to, to emigrate to New York. And I also wanted to pick up on something I thought wonderful that you said too, which is there are so many scenes um, back to back to back in this novel that show Polly's tremendous ambivalence to motherhood. She does not want Deming, um, but then there's this sort of moment where she's in New York and it's, she, she's up to her ankles in the um, sort of uh, equally strappy water of uh and complicated water of pony island i believe and she says you know you were wanted she decides to keep the baby she takes on more debt to take a leave to be with the baby then there's this moment where she tries to bring the baby to her factory job and the sort of unbelievable scene where she's trying so hard and she just cannot do it and then you have the moment where she very briefly in this sort of fit of um, maternal overwhelm um, does leave him, you know, for one one minute, 30 seconds on a street corner, and then she decides to send him to her father in China. So there's this sort of unbelievable complexity and ambivalence. And I never once doubted her tremendous love of this little boy and his tremendous love of her. But I did, and I did really love that Co allowed her to be such a real and complicated mother. I feel like I adore my own children, but I have def and I have had it much easier than Polly did. But there's definitely always a moment when you want to leave one in a box <laughs> for 30 seconds, um, as she does. And I, I just, I kind of loved some of those scenes that you were pointing to. That that point of ambivalence, I just found so moving in this novel. And speaking of parents, I want to hear what you guys have to make of Peter and Kay, the white couple who are professors who live in Ridgeboro, the suburban town in New York State, who take Daniel as a foster child and then adopt him. I I was so captivated by those characters right from the beginning in that very first scene, I think it is, where he's sort of sitting with them and, and they're complaining. It's like one of those moments that just tells you everything you need to know about them, you know, Peter's complaining, the minority students have been protesting at, at the college where he works. Um, we value diversity, he says, but the level of vitriol is not helping their cause. Like, it's, it, you can totally understand where he's coming from and what kind of guy this is. And he thinks his heart's in the right place. It kind of is. But he just, it, it's, so, I thought it was so incredibly well done because they're, they, you know, they are trying to do something really I think good for Deming, but you also see all the layers where 
it's clear that they're trying to kind of fill a hole from their own, you know, they can't have their own child. You know, they think they're very progressive for, for having adopted him. And it turns out, you know, but then they just, uh, little things like this miss all the time. He makes a crack about Mexicans and call a spade a spade. And it's just this very, you know, he doesn't realize any, what he's doing. And even when Daniel tries to explain it to him, he, he doesn't, doesn't get it. I just thought that that was so interesting. Yeah, there's this line right at the end on page 332 where he says, mm-hmm. uh, he recalled how she and Peter had insisted on English, his new name, the right education, yeah. how better and more hinged on their ideas of success, their plans. Mama, Chinese, the Bronx, Deming, they had never been enough. He shivered and for a brief horrible moment he could see himself the way he realized they saw him, as someone who needed to be saved. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think the language and the loss of the Fujinese dialect that he himself notices and feels that, you know, right around the times of his adoption and the next few high school years is so powerful. And the class difference, too, there's that detail that really strikes me where he I think the first night that he's in the Wilkinson's home he sleeps alone in a bed he's never been alone in a bed before you know he's never been in an apartment where everybody has their own room before and you really miss with him a lifestyle and the experience that he had in this crowded apartment with the tv always on with Michael always next to him I, I wanted to lift up, this is a sneaky way of getting one of my favorite lines in the whole book in, but I just wanted to lift up, this is on page 104, this is when Michael has found him and he is trying to talk about um, and remember Polly, and he says, I thought about you and your mom all the time, she was a cool mom, one time I didn't know where you were, but she took me to Burger King because she was craving fries, and she bought me fries too, and on our way home we passed this empty lot full of pigeons, and she said, Super seriously, Michael, in China, we'd eat those bitches, but steamed because their meat is tough. She was real funny, you know. And I just thought, like, that is so her. And it's so not Kay. And, you know, you miss, you know, Kay is trying, but you just, you really miss. He misses his mom, and you miss his mom with him. And you miss the language, and you miss the press of his experience of Chinatown. I don't know. I just, I just found that piece so moving as well. What I found so interesting was, you know, with Peter and Kay, he is so afraid, he is so fearful of being left again, that he's trying so hard to be who they want to be, that he doesn't really have much of an opportunity to even figure out who he is. And in those small moments when he does, when he kind of discovers his music and he wants to explore it, they really try to shut it down. And and he is kind of afraid to explore it too far for fear of alienating them and being left again. And he is someone who's been left over and over And it's not just the one time, you know, when his mom disappears, but it is that, you Mm -hmm. know, that being left, which he doesn't remember, but that being left on the street corner and and being sent to China. And then his grandfather dying, this person he had lived with, who'd been his primary caretaker for five years. We Mm -hmm. don't hear a ton about that, right? But you have to think, like, there's an abandonment there, too. And so, you know, it is, to me, so interesting the ways that he you know, that moment when he sees himself through their eyes as someone who needs to be saved, I think he is always seeing himself through other people's eyes because he's trying to be someone who won't be left. And that's almost the primary way he identifies as the person who is left. And so that's such a beautiful way of putting it. I completely agree. And then I wanted to pick up on what you said about language, Emily, because I think that is also something that Lisa Coe does really beautifully here, which is this idea of language as both something that is the way that we connect with each other, but also a way that we manipulate 
each other in a way that we can kind of lose each other. And so when he loses his Chinese, when he's living in Ridgeboro, it's kind of losing a piece of who he is. And when he kind of gets it back, when he's back in China, it's reclaiming that piece of himself. Yes, I, I completely agree with that. And I was thinking in addition, this is like answering a question with a question, but in addition to the language piece of it, I also, that had me thinking too about the sort of many ways that this novel thinks about immigration and the sort of costs of immigration and the costs of deportation and the sort of harrowing scenes in the deportation camp and the way that both Polly and Ming get sort of pushed around the world in different ways, both because they are pushing themselves and, and you know, creating new experiences for themselves, Polly more than Deming, and also just in ways that, you know, he is sent to China as an infant because she really has no other choice, you know, and, and he has no choice, obviously, in that and the way that she is kept in a detention camp and then deported and with that deportation and the lack of her ability to communicate, you know, there's that moment in the deportation center where all the women spell out the word help and no one sees or hears or cares. Her lack of communication around that is what sets the novel in motion and, you know, and what in so many ways breaks his heart and spirit for so long. And there, there, I guess there are ways that the idea of immigration and the idea of language and the idea of belonging to two countries and places and even the idea of belonging to this one family Leon and Polly, and in some ways Vivian and Michael, at the beginning, that family reconstitutes itself. In the end, he gets back all of those different relationships, but it's not quite the same, but in some ways it's a newer and more flexible model. You know, they're just, they're sort of different ways that both the language and the immigrant experience inform the ways in which he and his mother and all of the characters move around the world and around each other and are able to, you know, reconnect and, and not quite connect or have lost years with each other. Yeah, I was thinking about, there's a really, I think, beautiful sort of clever contrast she creates. So it, kind of early in the novel with Angel and Angel's family. Angel it, is a like, uh, Chinese girl who was adopted by a different white family, but uh, who are friends of Kay and Peters, but was adopted as an infant. And Deming comes to know her once he is adopted by Kay and Peter. She lives in the city, but they sometimes go to visit her and she and, and Deming develop a kind of friendship. Sorry, go on, Chris. And Angel, uh, I thought was just a, like a great foil for him because she, because she's adopted by a similar family by Jim and Elaine. Uh, but, but when she's, you know, so young that she doesn't really have a lot of memories from before that she's really only ever known America. And it's so, it's, it, it seems so much simpler through her eyes. And, uh, and that seems so frustrating. And I really felt that as Deming is, is talking with her, she doesn't, you know, she doesn't have to deal with all the complexities that he does because he, he's always going to have a foot in both worlds. And, um, she doesn't know Mandarin uh, or Fuzanese. I, I remember that was that being just such a crushing moment for him when he's all excited to get to, to meet her because he thinks he'll be able to talk to her. And of course, she doesn't know the language because she's been you know, living here her whole life. And her her concept of her culture is is all being filtered through Jim and Elaine. And Elaine is, uh, she says at one point on uh, page 90, I was an East Asian studies major. <laughs> <laughs> This is what she, you know, this is where she's getting the stuff from. The, 
He talks about us, the story of the red thread, an ancient Asian story. <laughs> how they know that Angel was always destined to be in their life. And it sounds so sweet and wonderful. And you can almost imagine, you know, on the, this very superficial level that this would be very satisfying, you know, for Angel and this family, but it's not going to work for Dimming because he is, you know, he, he, he remembers his mother. He remembers, he remembers his grandfather. He remembers China. And so he's got to find something else. And I, I loved what you said before about this sort of flexibility of this sort of family that he's able to kind of reinvent. And that's, I think that that to me was just so powerful. That's exactly what he needs to be able to find. He's not, he's not going to be able to locate a, a, you know, sort of like a little traditional nuclear family. He's got to find something that, that works for the world that he's been born into. And that actually brings me to one of my favorite characters, Michael, who, as we've said, is kind of his surrogate brother he lives with when he's younger. And, you know, I think at the end, he and Michael are roommates, again, living in New York together. And it seems to me that Michael, in some ways, is the only person who can fully understand his experience because he also has this kind of foot in one world of China, even though he has not himself lived in China. You know, he has this whole world of his mom and his uncle and the food they eat and the language they speak at home. And that is his experience. And yet, you know, by the time he's a, we meet him again and he's 20, he has this other foot in the world of, of academia and he's going to Columbia. And you just know that he's surrounded by like white kids who are kind of like the kids that Deming grew up with in Ridgeboro. And he also is kind of learning how to straddle both of those worlds. And so it seems so fitting to me that in the end, you know, it's with Michael that Deming finds the place that feels like home because it's mm-hmm. with someone, you know, that he can communicate in both of his languages about both of his worlds. And that person accepts him for who, for all Absolutely. of who he is. And there's that beautiful scene. I just love that moment where they've, they finally reconnect. I think, are they about they're college students roughly? And, uh, I th- and I think it's a Starbucks, but they yeah, reconnect it's a Starbucks. to a coffee shop. And they both see each other. And it's this amazing moment where they're each seeing you know, the child, really the 10 year old boy, you know, that they, they were torn from. And they're also seeing each other as these young, you know, Chinese American men who are finding their place in the world. And it just, you see that, right, there's the way in which they really are brothers, and certainly are foils to each other. And then the ways in which they've sort of moved off and and the things that only they really at this point can understand about their childhoods. Yeah. And and it's, you know, it's, it's, Michael, like Deming, was someone who really had no control over the forces that shaped their lives. And he didn't know what had happened to Michael, to, to Deming or to Polly. And, you know, yes. they are both now at this point where they're at a point of being able to make their own choices. And there's a point in the book where Daniel says that you know, he makes a decision and it's like the first time he can ever remember making his own decision. And it really is in that sense, as you said earlier, Chris, like I think it really is this coming of age story where, mm-hmm. you know, by the end, he is, has decided that he can make his own decisions and kind of take charge of the direction his life is going in and not leave it to all the forces that have, you know, kind of buffeted him before now. And you yes, see Michael actually, doing that same thing. And I think, again, that's why the two of them find each other. It's mm-hmm. funny, and I hadn't thought of this, but as you say that, it's true. And in fact, when he starts making his own decisions, he starts to... Um, remind me much more of Polly, who is just so ballsy right from the beginning, going, you know, leaving her tiny village, going to work in the factory, emigrating to New York City. You know, there's the way that she is constantly reinventing 
herself. So we see her as sort of living many, many different lives, and we see her as building different lives over the course of the novel. And, you know, she really lands on her feet in some ways at the very end. And I think that he, you know, he could take a lot from her scrappy, uh, from her scrappy example. Well, Chris and Emily, it has been really fun talking about this with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. This is uh, just such a beautiful book, and I'm so happy that I had an opportunity to read it. Yes, me too. I'm giving this book to everybody I know. I loved it. (laughs) I'm Sid Oppenheimer, and this is Book Talk on WNHH 103.5 FM. Next up, New Haven librarian Sharon Breslow recommends Hoot by Carl Hyacin. Hello, this is librarian Sharon Breslow from the Young Minds and Family Learning Department of the New Haven Free Public Library. I'm here today to talk about the book Hoot by author Carl Hyacin. It's an exciting, suspenseful mystery for middle school students. It features the new kid at Trace Middle School, a barefooted running boy, and someone that has it in from Mother Paula's All-American Pancake House. On the school bus one morning, new kid Roy Eberhardt spots a boy around his age running in the opposite direction of the bus. The sight of the barefooted boy piques Roy's attention, and he becomes determined to learn his story. Meanwhile, the future site of the 469th Mother Paula's All-American Pancake House is being vandalized. Does someone have a grudge against pancakes? Learning more about the mysterious boy leads Roy to discover that owls inhabit the future Pancake House's site. The boy only goes by the name Mullet Fingers. He does not attend school, and he camps out in various hideouts. He just might be the one holding up construction. Roy, Mullet Fingers, and his protective half-sister Beatrice become partners to save the owls, all all while Roy is trying to keep himself from being bullied by tough kid Dana Matherson. Will the cohorts be found out? Will they bulldoze the burying owls home for the pancake house? Find out if a group of middle schoolers can protect the owls from the big pancake franchise in this quick and ultimately uplifting summer read. Stop by the New Haven Free Public Library to check out Hoot and other books by Carl Hyacin and the rest of our great titles. Also learn about our summer reading challenge for children and teens. You can sign up this summer at the library or online through our website. For more information, visit website nhfpl.org. Thank you. Thanks, Sharon. On our next show, airing August 9th, we'll be talking about the novel The Locals, first with the author, Jonathan D., and then with my guest readers, Sam Purdy and Mark Oppenheimer. This is the first time I'm allowing my husband to appear on the show, so be sure to tune in. You can see what else is coming up or listen to old episodes on our website, booktalkradio.net. And, as ever, you can share your thoughts about this episode or any other on Facebook or Twitter, or by emailing me directly at booktalkwnhh at gmail.com. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.